Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Karl Marx spoke eight languages. He learned calculus and algebra to support his exploration of economics. With his friend Engels, he wrote over 4,000 letters to fellow academics. Most of his notes and manuscripts remained unpublished. The last decade of Marx has recently drawn attention as a synthesis of his remarkable contributions to our political discourse, still relevant today. Let's discuss this with a Marx scholar. Well, warm greetings, everybody. Uh, we are joined today with uh, uh, Greg on the East Coast and Carlos Garrido in the Midwest, and I'm on the West Coast, and we're discussing uh, Karl Marx. And, uh, and I would say that, uh, Carlos, you certainly would be considered a scholar of Marx uh, in, in your work at, at uh, SIU. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, Marx and Hegel have, uh, have been my, my central focus. Uh, and of course, the more specifically, when I talk about Marx, it's been the Marxist Leninist tradition, um, which is not too often found in, right. in academic Marxism anymore. But I engage with the Western uh, Marxist stuff as well. Well, uh, Greg and I passed books back and forth. And, and one book that we uh, discovered from your review, by the way, which is a, a, a fascinating re review in uh, March of this year, is the last years of Karl Marx, and I I thought that you know we just we discussed it and we went back and forth and we thought well why don't we have a Marx expert on to, <laughs> that that could uh, could discuss Musso's fabulous fabulous book of the recently discovered last decade of of Marx T tell me a little bit about your observations about that book well it. It covers one of the uh, most unexamined periods of Marx's life. I have a few of the old uh, Soviet uh, biographies, and what you find is that uh, towards those last 10 years, uh, specifically after, um, after Capital, more so, it's, it's primarily very abstract the way that the biographies go. There's not, um, there's not too much uh, stuff being said on it. It's... It's primarily manuscripts, so it's treated as if no serious work comes about. And in a sense, there's no serious like publication that that takes place after that. But when you look at the um, the notes that he was taking, the ridiculous amount of reading that he was doing uh, in all sorts of fields and mathematics and different sciences and anthropology and history, of course, in economics, um, yeah, there's fascinating there's fascinating stuff and. Uh, this research that, um, so uh, Musso's book deals with that, he deals with various topics. I think that uh, probably by far the most important one is the, the studies on anthropology and uh, his analysis of the Russian Abshina, which means the, the rural commune that existed in Russia. And this work has been primarily revived in Latin America, specifically in, in Bolivia, um, because they they see that the, the way that Marx concretely analyzed these certain forms of life and just was very hesitant to accept the way that people, some of them calling themselves Marxists, would just take the sort of historical schema that he provided for East or Western Europe 
and just apply it somewhere else. He was very hesitant uh, to do that and very critical of that. So um, the developments that have taken place, that take place towards the end of Marx's life are both uh, very unknown in the West, which is the importance of this book in English, uh, but also very important specifically for the recent developments in, in Latin American socialist projects. Uh, you know, in reading this book, uh, Marx was really a, a brilliant fellow, um, uh, an intellect that was uh, remarkable. He, he learned eight languages. He taught himself Russian because he wanted to know more about the communes in Russia and the region. In 1869. So just think of how old he was in 1869. You usually hear that after being 30, it's like basically impossible to learn a language. He, he, he suffered horribly from um, lung problems, uh, mm -hmm. personal problems, uh, losing his wife, losing his daughter. So the emotional uh, issues that were reflected in this last decade were, were prominent. And yet he did things like, I'm going to teach myself algebra and differential <laughs> calculus because I want to make sure that my work on capital is, <laughs> the math is correct. Uh, you know, he he discussed he 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 studied um, mathematics, uh, taught himself that um, anthropology, um, uh, mineralogy. All of those uh, issues were in the last decade. Just he he was prominent with that. Yeah. So he 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 starts studying uh, math in the time that he's writing the seven notebooks that we now know as the Grandries. Uh, so 57 and 59, 1857 and 1859. And he notices that he makes certain mistakes in just like basic algebraic math. So he very unwillingly, but with math. Um, and after a few years pass, he's like driving Engels crazy in his letters because he keeps talking about math. And he sends Engels this big manuscript and um, it's interesting because the letters uh, uh, from Paul Lafargue, who is um, his Cuban son-in-law, and I say that very proudly because I'm Cuban as well, but his Cuban uh, son-in-law, he says that uh, when Marx was in the darkest emotional places of his life, <laughs> and he would do math, which, um, you know, I think most people would find quite strange, right, but right. like you said, there was a lot of emotional suffering towards that latter part of his life he has the death of his wife who i mean he knew since basically his whole life um and who he married quite young he had the death of his first daughter uh, jenny chen uh, jenny caroline he used to call her jenny chen um he had to deal with his other uh daughter she would end up killing herself uh later on in 1898 um so there was a lot of emotional damage and then just uh, just physical pain. He was someone who was sick most of his life with this, the skin problem, but towards the end, he develops a lung uh, disease, which is quite brutal and takes him away from his work for substantial periods of time. And one of the things that you get in Booster's biography is uh, how doctors were trying to, to deal with this. They were just sending him all over the place to try to find climates that would help uh, in part those last uh, 72 days that he, those 72 days he spends in Algeria, which is the only time he leaves Europe ever in his life. Um, he went there uh, unwillingly, but 
he ended up convincing himself that if he was able to get better, maybe he could finish capital. And <laughs> he's talking about capital volume one. <laughs> he right, kept on right. perfecting it, right? He wanted to get a third German edition out there. Um, so it's, it's a, I think the, the difficulties that he was facing just in his everyday life are captured nicely by the last piece of writing that he did, which was a letter to his doctor where he says that um, the, the sort of uh, em, the emotional and, and mental pain is so bad that I kind of get the, when I get a headache, because it helps me move away from, from the, so like physical pain was helping him right. move away from emotional pain. And you were you were chatting about um, Marx's emotional and physical problems and how he moved to Algiers, and that's one of the things that I think is interesting. His observations in Algeria is a Muslim country, and he continued all through his life making observations and sort of revising some of his theories about. Um, you know, different countries and his theories as they as they relate to that. Tell him, tell the story about him playing cards or seeing the card game with the extremely wealthy and the extremely poor and how that how, what his thoughts were about that in that that in Algeria. Yes. Uh, so it's interesting is that, I mean, we're talking in a general context where the last part of his life is under examined this trip is itself like the most under-examined part of that last part of his life. He spends 72 days, which is a relatively long time in Algiers. And um, he sees a few things. Uh, one of the things that he sees is uh, the despicable way that the uh, French colonial police treats uh, the people there. And he's very critical of it. Uh, he sees the way, the sort of what he calls the haughtiness of the European tourist who goes to Algeria on tourism, but they feel themselves as if as if they're a king or a prince or something. Uh, and he's very much disgusted by that. I saw a video um, recently, an older video of uh, a couple upper class French uh, women in Vietnam just tossing coins at Vietnamese kids. And that's the sort of stuff that he was uh, kind of witnessing from the European tourists in, in Algiers. But uh, it's interesting because he he sees an event, uh, the one you've asked me to describe, of a few um, uh, of a few Algerians playing cards, and he sees people that are well dressed and then people that are poorly dressed, and they're all interacting in like a very neutral way. And so he says uh, something along the lines of like they they embodied uh, uh, the the fact that they were all children of Muhammad. Um, and so he, that's an interesting observation because you don't generally see that in, in European civil society. You don't see uh, workers or, or peasants interacting in a relatively equal manner with, with uh, either the, the, the owning class or landlords or uh, nobility. Um, so that was something that impressed him very much. And there was also like these little amusing stories that, that he would hear uh, that he would sent back to either his daughter Laura or Angles. He sends around 19 letters at that time, but there's interesting social observations. And I, I think that one of the things that it confirms is something which sh I think shouldn't even be a question, which is the uh, some of the myths that are created from bourgeois uh, academia, which 
in trying to sound radical, they have created this myth of like a Eurocentric Marx um, and a, a Marx whose um, understanding of history legitimizes and justifies colonialism, right? Like a colonialism sympathizing Marx. And that's just not true at all, right? For, I mean, there's some letters early on um, and, and some articles that Engels and, and that Engels does on, uh, on the American expansion westward that are a little iffy, but um, the general, the general, um, his work that doesn't point towards any, any of that colonialism sympathizing uh, worldview. And that's still something that is, is prevalent in academia. As, as you mentioned, um, I am right now in academia, so I hear uh, the different strands of, of, of radicalism and uh, they all have this conception. And this time in Algiers kind of just shows from an everyday uh, uh, social level how that's not true at all. He's very critical of the French police um, and very impressed with, uh, with Muslim culture in, in Algeria. You know, it's, uh, I, I was most impressed with the book because it humanized uh, Marx. And uh, of course, that's really been uh, bourgeois sources, bourgeois commentators, uh, unfriendly uh, folks to, to Marx have created a, a myth about him being a hard, callous uh, human being. So I thought the great, great a value of the book was in humanizing him, but it also shows his evolution, and uh, that's often lost in the in the accounts of, of Western Marxists, quote unquote Marxists, who focus on the early Marx or this part of Marx or that part of Marx, and they don't they 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 fail to understand it. It's an evolving theory. It's an evolving uh, position and approach. And uh, he had an insatiable desire to learn and to, to expand what he was working on. And, and, and seemingly everything excited him. I mean, everything from a, a loss of thermodynamics. I mean, anything that came up that was new and scientific fascinated Marx. And he tried to see how that fit into a, a unified uh, uh, worldview. But it was kind of an unfinished worldview, which it should be. But yeah. uh, I give, I give Musto great credit for focusing on that part of his life when perhaps he wasn't as productive in terms of books, in terms of what we know or remember from him, but to show how alive Marx still was, his, 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 his sense of uh, inquiry of, of discovery was still there. So yeah, I thought you captured that well in your review, very well in your review. Yeah, so one of the, uh, I, I think that the, perhaps the, the clearest place that you see that in is in his analysis of, of the Russian commune, um, which is connected to his general anthropological studies, uh, which as I mentioned, besides in Latin American projects has been something quite overlooked. You have in 1972, the publication of the Ethnological Notebooks of Marx, uh, which is done by, by Crater, Lawrence Crater, who introduces it. Uh, and that contains some of his readings, perhaps the most important one was the Lewis Henry Morgan Ancient Societies, uh, which of course Engels publishes in 1884, the origins of the family, private property and estate. And it's, it's basically analyzing both Morgan's ancient societies, ancient society, and uh, the notes that Marx had taken from, from Morgan. Uh, and 
that changes uh, primarily Marx's, well, both of their views on the family. They had a, a fairly bourgeois notion of the family as, uh, as the, the primary social unit. And they find in their studies that uh, uh, familias and, and familia both come from uh, slave connotations. Uh, familias was uh, the name for this, the slave that a man owned in, in, in Rome. And then familia was the sort of lot of slaves that was owned by one man. And so he, they end up seeing through the studies of, of Lewis Henry Morgan that uh, uh, the family is sort of the ground for both slavery and serfdom, uh, which is something uh, quite, a, uh, quite a meaningful change in, in their view. Um, it has been taken up, of course, by, by Marxist feminists quite a bit, but, uh, and there's also the confirmation of, of the state as a sort of uh, transitory, quite new uh, creation of, of human social relations, which again is a thesis that, that Marxists have had since basically 1843. Um, that's confirmed in, in Lewis Henry Morgan's work. And, uh, but the, the implications of uh, Crater's notebooks weren't, uh, they didn't, um, they didn't explode like they, there wasn't much significance in the West given to them. Uh, the significance has primarily been given uh, to them through Latin America and specifically a notebook that uh, Crater leaves out is the Maxim Kovalevsky notebooks. Kovalevsky was a Russian uh, anthropologist. He was one of what Marx called his scientific friends. And he wrote a book uh, called Communal Land Ownership. And in that text, he studies uh, pre-Columbian uh, societies, specifically the Aztecs and the Inca empires. And, uh, and he also studies India and the information that he finds is quite useful for Marx, but Marx ends up being uh, critical of, of Kovalevsky's application of certain categories like peasantry or feudalism or uh, uh, that he took from Marx's analysis of the stages that Europe had gone through and he applied it to places that had completely different concrete conditions and histories. Um, so why is that important? Why is that important? Well, the, the Marxists in, in Bolivia and in Latin America have found that part of interpreting the world uh, correctly, which for us, it means interpreting it concretely, uh, historicizing the world is that it gives you uh, the best chance to apply the best methods in trying to change it, right? There's often uh, the, the famous 11 thesis is often misunderstood uh, as just a, a sort of endorsement of blind practice, but that's not the case at all. When he says that philosophers have hit earth only interpreted the world to point harvest to change it, he's not saying we don't have to interpret the world, but the interpretation has to be grounded in and aimed at changing the world in a revolutionary manner. Uh, and so if you're misinterpreting the world by applying these categories from outside to different concrete conditions, to different historical developments, you are setting yourself two steps back in the changing of the world. And if you analyze classes incorrectly because you're calling them a class that was uh, specific 
you're calling like the the um, the original primary communities that still exist in, in in a few places in Latin America. If you're calling them like peasants, you're not understanding their concrete position in the mode of life and how capitalism has the sort of mode of life that capitalism has has created and its and its expansion there. And you're undermining perhaps the revolutionary potential that might be in that class. Uh, and the he, he makes those statements with relationship to Kovalevsky, but they really concretize in his analysis of Russia. So as we mentioned, I don't know if it was before I, I froze, but uh, as we mentioned in Marx begins to study Russian in 1869. And he does that because he's very interested um, in, in ground rents and Russian agrarian conditions in, in general. As a side note, the ground rent stuff has really just taken off uh, his, his studies of Justice von Liebig uh, have really taken off in the last 20 or so years with the work of John Bellamy Foster into a Marxist ecology and, and uh, uh, the development of the theory of metabolism and metabolic rifts. Uh, but anyways, he's he's very interested in in Russia and in the fight against Sardom and in the role that the commune can play, and he finds himself uh, very interested by the writings of Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who is a, a, a left wing uh, socialist populist, and Chernyshevsky had a view that uh, argued that. Once historical development took place in one area, uh, its uh, emergence in another area, that development's emergence in another area doesn't have to go through the same steps as it did in the first area because it already exists. Um, it's almost a commonsensical point. If something's already developed in one place, its development in another, it's usually going to be a whole lot quicker. So he had a view that uh, the parts to, to use a, uh, a, the more backward parts of, of the world, didn't have to go through all of the stages that Europe did to have the productive, uh, the development in the forces of production that, that Europe had, uh, that they can have that development in the forces of production while sustaining the sort of communal relations that still predominated certain regions of, of Russia. Uh, and he has this, this uh, amusing quote where he, he says history is like a grandmother. Uh, it's very fond of its youngest children. Uh, to the older ones, it gives the bone and to the younger ones, the marrow, right? Uh, so he's, Marx is very interested in Chernyshevsky. And- uh, so, so to to state another way, yeah, when you look at the development of a nation, they go through you know more primitive stages and they go through a, a stair step and he mm -hmm. said that all these nations don't have to these quotes primitive nations don't have to go through all of these stages they can learn from the what has come before them and that was a pretty radical thought change in in a way is that is that am i saying that correctly oh yeah yeah um well if if, if we think about it in so we have 500 years of capitals but before that, we have feudalism, uh, which it didn't have capitalist private property, but it had what, what Marx calls in capital, um, self-earned private property, 
right? Individualized uh, uh, private property. Before that, you have uh, with Rome and, and, and with Greece, uh, you have primarily slave economies, what are called now slave democracies. Uh, so you haven't had what you've what you had in that moment in Russia, which is just a, a commune, a bunch of people living, a bunch of the population living in basically communistic relations. You haven't had that for ages <laughs> in Europe, right? It's not just capitalism. It's it's uh, it's a, been a very long time since anything like that has been in Europe in general. Some places have had it, but uh, so it, it'll be somewhat ridiculous to try to apply the the stage theory that fits correctly that results from a concrete dialectical materialist analysis of Europe uh, to fit that in, in another place that has completely different social relations, right? Um, now, capitalism is a system that necessarily expands. So Marx wasn't, uh, wasn't like saying, oh, capitalism is never going to touch these regions. He was very well aware of that. It was it was going to get there, and that it was, and and very, um, in a very uh, embryonic manner, already getting there. Uh, but the argument was, so uh, let me first uh, mention the famous. There's a famous letter that's um, that's a little bit more well known that is sent by a Russian populist, Vera Sasulish, and she basically tells them. I think the, the quote is something like a life or death question, <laughs> um, which is a little bit of pressure to put <laughs> on Marx, but we have a life or death question for you. Uh, we have this sort of fork, which is that some uh, revolutionaries, specifically the ones calling themselves Marxists, are saying that the Obshina, the, the rural commune, is bound to dissolve and that we should just watch it dissolve and then wait for capitalism to develop a proletariat which then creates the conditions for, for a socialist revolution. Um, and then there was other uh, socialist uh, left-wing uh, populists who said that, no, that the commune uh, already had a communistic ethos and that that force could be used in the development of socialism. What's interesting is that some years prior, there was a, a Russian, uh, Mikhailovsky, who wrote an article where he argued that the Marxists in Russia should be very joyful at what capitalism is doing, which is basically at that point, the beginning of like a process of enclosure, uh, the kicking of, of, of the people from the commons in order to create the sort of uh, laborers that are needed in order to transform them into proletariat, um, et cetera. So he says that what the Marxists should be joyful that this is going on because it merely uh, moves us closer to uh, the beneficial future that uh, they're thinking about. This was one of the more liberal right-wing populists. And Marx drafts a letter reply. He never sends it, but he basically says something very similar to what he says in the Kowalewski notebook, which is that he, Mikhailovsky was just taking the comments that Marx uh, made specifically with reference to his studies in Western Europe and just applying them as a universal historical schema in Russia. And so when this letter from Zasulich comes in, he's already kind of practiced, rehearsed the process of, of thinking about these questions. He's already been thinking about it. But nonetheless, he, he drafts four replies, one that's fairly long, 
uh, and then the rest are a little bit shorter, but the ones he, the one he ends up sending is, is a few pages long. And his response is uh, that uh, the Obshina, be, so the Russian commune, because it has access through markets to uh, the Western world and, and therefore to capitalism, it has access to the forces of production that capitalism has developed. And if it is able to somehow, he doesn't say how, but if it is able to get a hold of those forces of production, the, it is very possible that the commune could sustain the relations that it had with, a more advanced, uh, with more advanced forces of production. In other words, that if the commune dissolves, there, there was nothing inevitable about it, right? It could have gone another path. Um, which in essence, if you analyze that in the context of his readings of Chernyshevsky, it is him adopting the thesis that Chernyshevsky had. Um, so uh, he sends that letter to Vera Sosulich, and it's very uh, unexpected. Uh, it's a very unexpected uh, response because again, most Marxists uh, held the view that basically Marx and Engels both held for, for most of their life that, uh, that capitalism had to develop everywhere. I mean, he says in the- Well, stop, the, stop right there. That, yeah, sorry, that sorry. just surpri that surprised the heck out of me. And I, well, yeah. I'm, Greg, you probably know about this because you were more of a Marx scholar, but the idea that they, they wanted capitalism to progress because it had to progress in order to show the problems with it in order to dissolve it. Is, is that correct? I, that, that to me just seems so counterintuitive. Well, but Pat, I mean, when you say they, who are the they? I mean, uh, that became fashionable at the time of the Second International, especially yeah. with the German, uh, German Marxist. <clears throat> but that also tied in very closely with their, their move to revisionism, to opportunism. Yeah. Uh, and so they fit together ideologically. I mean, you have to place it in that framework. So when you say they, let's be clear about who they is. I, I think it's a little bit of a, a straw man in that so many people say, aha, uh, later in Marx, we see that uh, Marx is much more flexible. He had a much larger, more all-encompassing view. But of course, I think he always did. I mean, I, I think he was open yeah. to all of this. That's part of the straw man that's been created. We have to, we must fight setting up this straw man and then targeting and say, oh, we found in Marx that Marx didn't really believe that. Well, of course he didn't believe that. And I think you, you know, you look at the rural commune. The rural commune, in fact, uh, 50 years later when the Bolshevik revolution occurred after the, after the freeing of the, of the, uh, of the serfs, uh, what was left of whatever was left of that, whatever remnants there were of that sentiment or that thinking or that uh, communalism that you might want to base socialism on was gone. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I mean, when you look at what the Bolsheviks had to do to return and restore a collectivism to the to the uh, to the uh, to the uh, countryside, uh, you, you throw your hands in the air and say, "So what?" I mean, really, I, I don't mean to be you know dismissive but so what i mean i think it's a good it's a good way of showing that the straw man that's been created about marx being rigid and being this is what marx was uh really is just that a straw man because yeah. he he was open to the idea that there were aspects just as there are today um in china 
you have you have uh, remnants of uh, not remnants of, but you have a big portion of the ideology that the Communist Party keeps alive, and a kind of conflictual relationship with the capitalism that's going on there. And to understand that properly, you have to understand how they interact. And, and I think that's kind of what you you accomplish well in many of your articles when you bring back the, the infamous dialectic when you restore things to a dialectical approach. And I, I applaud you for that. And the, that uh, purity, purity article that you wrote, of, um, tell us a little bit about that, about how we are always trying to have this rigidly defined. And it, if, if it doesn't fit absolutely everything just perfectly, then we dismiss it. And, and I think that also goes to, you wrote also when he was corresponding with the Americans uh, that he did not think that there was one size fits all. He thought that every situation was unique. It should be treated uniquely. And there wasn't this rigid uh, purity, if you would say. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I agree with Greg. There, There is nowhere in, in the work of Marx that sort of closed uh, uh, one size fits all approach that is created as a straw man to, to attack Marxism, right? Um, so the purity fetish, it's, it's an idea that comes from a, a work that hasn't been translated yet from Dominico Lasorda, which I think uh, for me is perhaps one of the, the, the better Marxist-Leninist philosophers that we've had in a while. He just recently passed, um, but he's got a book called uh, Western Marxism, which I had the chance to read because it was translated in Spanish. Uh, and in that book, he develops the idea that uh, what you have in the West is, um, uh, in, in Marxist theories specifically, uh, and he's referring to like the, mostly the folks in academia, not like party theorists, uh, but what you have in the West is a condition where they're able to be very critical and like try to pull apart the assumptions that take place in Marxist theory and other places, but their assumptions are themselves never questioned. And so he traces this thing called uh, a, a purity fetish or, or this obsession with purity to Christianity. And uh, he ends up saying that uh, this condition that the Western left has, which basically rejects uh, any sort of socialist experiments because it fails to measure up to their mental ideal of what socialism is like, this is uh, rooted in, in Christianity. And what I have done in my work is uh, try to expand on that and say that although that is correct, it's not rooted in Christianity. Where does its existence in Christianity come from? And so I trace it to the, um, to the philosophical debates between Parmenides and, and Heraclitus. And I argue that the Parmenidian conception of truth as that which is one, unchanging and pure has really dominated. Uh, it dominated uh, Greek philosophy, it dominated Roman philosophy, and it got imbued in Christian philosophy. And the paradox is that uh, Western Marxists who uh, are always wagging their finger at uh, the socialist uh, attempts that have taken place in the third world, um, who say that, uh, that they're dogmatists and, and mechanical and you know all these things, um, which is interesting as a side note, because they point to like manuals, <laughs> which are like just meant to be read by everyday folks, right? But uh, they, they accuse basically uh, the Soviet 
tradition of Marxism and Marxism-Leninism in general of being dogmatic and static and metaphysical. But it is them, I argue, that are the ones that are metaphysical when they analyze the world, because they expect socialism uh, to be this pure thing and the socialist construction to be uh, this thing that actualizes itself perfectly uh, from their ideas. And it's, it's, it's the framework of, of utopian socialism. But anyways, I argue that uh, in line with the sort of Hegelian and the Marxist uh, tradition of dialectics that um, there's no just thing uh, that is pure, everything in order to exist, in order to be, in, in order to exist in, in a process. Uh, it has to desecrate its purity. And so socialism, when it is being constructed in a atmosphere of the global dominance of capitalism and imperialism, where there's internal pressures, uh, owning classes, landlord classes, and, and bourgeoisie that are trying to collaborate with imperialism, it, uh, it cannot exist with some of the pure ideals that uh, are, are formulated in what you know, Lenin would call abstract communism, right? It has to desecrate that purity in order to defend the revolution. And that means different things in different places. And in Cuba, it means that after the revolution, the people that were doing terrorist acts and, and fighting with uh, the Batista dictatorship and defending it, uh, some of those people have to be imprisoned. Others uh, that killed many just innocent peasants just because they like gave food to uh, to the revolutionaries, others have to be killed. <laughs> That's and 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 you know, maybe we could think about how things could have been done differently and we can personally think that we would have done something else but the wagging of the finger and the ultimate rejection and, and breaking with socialist projects because of what they did is a complete break with dialectical thinking it fails to analyze things in their context it looks at facts and it severs them from the factors uh from the factors of imperialism pressure the sort of culture that existed before the socialist revolution in those countries uh, and, and what it ultimately boils down to is their uh, application of the metaphysical or um, dogmatic outlook that, uh, that they claim to, uh, to see existing in, in the places where a socialist revolution has taken place. And what I have called that phenomenon is a purity fetish, right? Because there, there's an obsession, there's a, a, a fetish, a, a fundamental disconnection between the ideal and reality and they have fetishized the ideal of socialism. And if they don't see it purely manifested in reality, they ultimately reject it. And that has interesting political implications because what it does in the West is it legitimizes uh, a sort of left-wing critiques, critique of, of, of socialism. Uh, and that's very effective. And we know from the last 70 years or so that uh, a lot of the funding that has been uh, a lot of the opposition funding that has been given by the State Departments against socialism, uh, whether Soviet socialism or, or whatever the case may be, has been given to left-wing currents that can critique the Soviet project, Chinese project, or whatever socialist project from the left. Um, and that critique from the left is very effective because capitalism uh, keeps the vast majority of people in a the state of desperation and ultimately in certain notable points at certain moments uh, when crisis hits people have this uh, internally accumulated uh, desperation and they're going to act and if the left that you create is one which is critical of socialism uh, in other countries 
you're creating the conditions so that any sort of uprising is, is automatically diffused. And I think that as of late, this has somewhat uh, been a stabilizing force for, for capitalism, right? It's almost like the, uh, the dictum from uh, the novel, The Leopard, right? If you want things to stay the same, they must change. And <laughs> what you've had is that you've had great mobilizations that come up spontaneously without any organization or revolutionary theory behind them. And then they just diffuse and people get back to work on Monday and and it stabilizes society. It's almost like a libidinal release. Uh, and uh, those conditions I, I think are tied uh, fundamentally or what's, what helps that be the sort of state that we're in, which I think with the recent developments of the labor movement, perhaps it's, it's changing, but what helps that uh, exist is a framework from the dominant Marxist currents in the West, uh, which is this purity fetish, which rejects any socialist experiment. And I think there's a certain sense of chauvinism in there because how are you going to point at everywhere where socialist experiments have attempted uh, to, uh, to take place and, and condemn them, but then still say, you know, we, the, the virtuous West, we're the ones that are gonna be able to, to materialize and actualize socialism. Everything that has taken place before, it's either not socialism uh, or it's, you know, and you start to see these, these different terms used derogatively like state capitalism or um, totalitarianism, dictatorships. Uh, and it's very, it's, it's very sad. For instance, I, I, I was very in, involved in covering the protests last year in July 11th with Cuba. And one of the interesting things that happened was that there was uh, this one Trotsky is who got arrested for one day by mistake because he was uh, he just found himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was released the next day, but there was this letter that was being sent around that was signed by most academics in the West uh, to release him. And they were calling Cuba an authoritarian government because of that. And the guy had already been released when the letter was being shared. <laughs> um, all of that serves to legitimize imperialism. And it comes at specific moments when the revolutions have to be defended and when people from within the empire who consider themselves anti-imperialist and socialist have to do everything they can to oppose imperialist narratives and to debunk the, the imperialist propaganda. So tell, tell me what's going on with Cuba right now with, with the before, changes. Before we go to Cuba, can I just comment on that? I, I, I really, I'm compelled to comment on it because I thought it was so good. I mean, I, I think it's remarkably good, concise, clear, and really to the point explanation of how thinking in this country is shaped and how it's directed in this particular way. I read it in the article that you wrote, I thought it was really, really very good. But your explanation today is even better. And, uh, you know, having lived through much of this, I mean, you grow up, for example, I grew up in a working class family. And so I was exposed to somewhat left ideas. And I had some folks in my family that were more left than others. But in the McCarthy era, in which I grew up in, or I, I come into, you see how these ideas are shaped, how, how you're, you're, you're directed. Uh, if you are a left-oriented person against the Soviet Union, against communism, because they were impure, because they were not the ideal. They did not achieve the kind of... Uh, uh, purity, as, as, as Carlos puts it so well. 
And so I, was, I thought that was an incredibly powerful uh, uh, article that you wrote. And um, I, when I think of Western Marxism, I'm, I'm thinking generally of academic Marxism, academic Western Marxism. And I think if you go back historically, you deal with it theoretically, you'll find that you find that uh, Western Marxism and its purity grow right alongside of historically the development of Leninism. I mean, as Lenin, as Lenin is successful, successful with the Bolshevik Revolution, as Leninism takes roots in various countries and a Leninist party emerges, more and more this purity thing emerges and academics grab onto it and they talk about all the flaws, the shortcomings, the, the unfortunate incidents, they, the failure to achieve the highest goals of, of socialism. And we live with that all our lives. And I think if you talk to youngsters that are, are, are drawn into some of the left groups today, they're honest and they, they believe in socialism, but they always have this critique of the Soviet Union. They always have this cr cr uh, critique of real existing socialism. They always have this critique of, of, a, of a party, of a vanguard party and how it's not democratic enough and so on and so forth. So I just wanted, I, I didn't want to go on and on about your article, but I really thought that was a, a, a superb article and I think it should be circulated. We should put it on our, on our uh, uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll link it. On to Cuba. Cuba, tell me about Cuba. And uh, I, I've been following this. There's some changes with, is it section 43 and the immigration is changing the, the way in which the, the rules are gonna be shifting here and we're gonna be seeing a lot more immigrants come in. Is that associated with asylum, the moratorium on the asylum and now it's being taken away? Uh, tell anyway, you talk. I mean, I've, I've heard a little bit about it but I haven't been following it that closely. As I mentioned, I've been working on a book for the last uh, uh, like eight, nine months. So I've been uh, very uh, hermit mode. Um, but uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things about uh, immigration or one of the sad things about immigration is that Cuba has a law, I forget which one it is, that prevents people to throw themselves in, in the ocean, right? To, to, to come, what in Spanish are called uh, badzeros, right? the folks that, that come on rafts. They have a law against that. And uh, what's usually uh, appealed to uh, in the sort of narrative against Cuba is, is that law and uh, uh, the general narrative for why people are not allowed to leave is usually pinned as, as the Cuban government trying to keep its people in or it's pinned on Cuba. But the reality is that it's the US, right? The US makes it impossible to people to get visas um, and they want to create the conditions for people to throw themselves in the ocean. Why is that? Well, because it creates fantastic atrocity propaganda. Um, it works for the imperialist narrative, right? Cuba doesn't want people that don't want to be there to, to be there. They're okay with people leaving. It's not Cuba. It's, it's the U.S. that prevents that so that people throw themselves in the ocean so that the pictures are captured and the stories are spinned and the nice romantic music is put in the background when you spend these stories, you get people's feelings riled up and then propaganda disseminates itself and, and it's effective. Um, so I, I haven't followed the, the recent developments, but immigration and, and uh, there's many thousands of lives that have been lost in the ocean and it's tragic, but we can't forget that the, uh, the fault lies on, on American imperialism, right? 
the only way that we can forget that is if we treat it as an abstract issue. If we just look at people throwing themselves in the ocean and forget to analyze the context. Again, if we do not understand things dialectically, right? If we do not understand the factors that are behind the fact. Now, I think they're going to be changing where now they are allowing the visas to Nicaragua and then from Nicaragua, the Cubans will be coming here. Uh, I th I, as I understand also that the policy with the Trump administration was we are not allowing anybody to come as a refugee, which is an international law. You can't just have one country refuse that. And, and they changed that and they put a moratorium on that. And now that's going to be shifting too. So there's going to be a huge amount of, um, you, there's going to be a huge amount of changes uh, with more immigration coming. I was watching Fox News last night, and I think that the Democrats grooming children with uh, critical race theory is going to be replaced by the primal hordes coming to the, the you know the country, which is sort of what we're seeing in the French election right you know right now. So so. Tell tell me about the Midwest marks. Midwest marks. That is such a good podcast how how who started that how's that affiliated um is it well, midwestern uh, marks midwestern yeah. marks yeah midwestern marks um i uh I, I started with my buddy when we graduated in uh 2020 um we had worked with dsa uh for basically all of the time that we were in undergrads and um we had quite a few critiques of the dominant uh, left, the, D, the DSA left. I know there was a conference in, in 2019, the Socialist Conference in Chicago. Uh, after that happened, we were shocked because the DSA had people on that were promoting regime change against Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, that were referring to Cuba as a, as a tyrannous, uh, as, as a dictatorship, right? Um, and not in the way that we talk about dictatorship. Uh, so I think a week after it came out uh, from the gray zone that some of those people were funded by uh, the NED, which we know is uh, uh, an arm of, of the CIA and the State Department. But we were very disappointed with that. Uh, and along with that, we were noticing that a lot of the things that socialists were primarily concerned with were kind of divorced from the concerns of the general working class. Um, and not that the things were bad, like we supported those things, but there wasn't an emphasis to organize workers, right? The, and when we looked at the composition of, of that left, we, we saw that it's primarily folks in, in the professional managerial class, that's the sort of term that has emerged. Um, and then besides uh, that anti-imperialist point, the point of uh, organizing workers, we saw that the sort of alternative uh, to that left was this ultra position of, of people who had almost like internalized the McCarthyite smears of communism as, as communism as something that wants to like bring death to America. <laughs> um, and we were against that. We, we felt that uh, we feel that uh, there's a strong socialist tradition in, in the U.S., uh, a strong abolitionist tradition, feminist worker, uh, anti-racist tradition. And that's part of the American project. We can't like think of that as separated. You know, that's that's something that results from the internal contradictions of American capitalism and then American imperialism. So we uh, we felt that 
we weren't really comfortable with uh, most of the places that uh, were out. And so we created Midwestern Marks as a website. Um, uh, the person who I created it with, uh, Eddie Smith, he opened up a TikTok and he had been running the TikTok. And for some reason, it blew up. Uh, we got to uh, close to 400,000 followers. And from that, we were shifting, uh, sending people to the website and sending people to the YouTube. And we developed the, the Journal of American Social Studies, which is um, officially inscribed with an official ISSN number and stuff. And we, it's the most scholarly part of our project. Now we're opening uh, a print press. We have a few books in line. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's been unexpected, but um, we've really enjoyed it. And we've kind of, we've kind of seen perspectives change as we have grown as, as a project. People don't fall for imperialist propaganda as, as much as they did when we started. And that's not to say it's us. There's a lot of people doing great work on that, but um, there's a new focus, I think, in, in the labor movement. Uh, so we've seen a, a change that we think is generally positive. We've also seen censorship. <laughs> the uh, TikTok account that we had close to 400K, it was permanently banned. Uh, we created a backup account. It got close to 500,000. Uh, uh, followers that one got banned and we just created a third one and it got uh, banned within a day we were able to get it back but uh, it's 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 been uh, fun but the aim of the project is that it's it's Marxist uh, education news uh, and we're pretty broad although the editors are uh, all Marxist Leninists involved in different political organizations and, and parties uh, we allow for, for just a general uh, online uh, discourse from the left that seeks to, in different ways, advance the class struggle, insofar as it's not antagonistic to the, those central principles, insofar as it doesn't promote a sort of uh, pessimism or uh, pro-imperialist narratives. Uh, so, yeah, that's the... I, your Your section on educating Kyle Kalinske to become a Marxist is just... <laughs> It is the most clever. I should send you these links, uh, Greg. They, they'll play Kyle Kalinsky's, you know, uh, sections, and he's talking about how we need AOC and we need to support Bernie and we need to, and then they'll come in and do a commentary and say, you know, okay, that's fine, but you're missing the real point here. The real point that, you know, you're supporting. Uh, you're supporting the imperialist uh, capitalist uh, foundation of how things are run. You're not questioning that. And you're snipping around the edges. And it's done in a respectful way and uh, in an educational way. Very, very educational. Has, has Kyle ever responded to you yet? No, he hasn't. He hasn't. I know a lot of people when, when Eddie does those videos, they, they'll like tag him on Twitter. But he hasn't responded. I mean, it's a sort of... Uh, it's the sort of spaces that we had uh, developed in and then developed out of. <laughs> so um, if, if we feel that if, if we were there once and with studying and practice and engagement with everyday people, both Eddie and I worked with the Bernie campaign in, in Iowa. So we had to talk to thousands of, of working folks about socialism, which is uh, something that most uh, people would think is uncomfortable. But once you, once you start talking to working people, I think that um, if they're open to the discussion, if you're not obnoxious, if you're not um, condescending, 
uh, it's in, it's it's the sort of thing that working people understand and that they uh, can get behind. Uh, so we felt that if we developed out of it, there's a lot of people that probably can as well. So we promote uh, Marxist and Marxist-Leninist education, and that's one of the ways that we do it. Yeah. How do they justify kicking you off uh, TikTok? I mean, what do they What do they tell you that uh, they they object to? So uh, there's different excuses, but the ones that they've been using is bullying, uh, and the other one is promoting uh, harassment. Or so uh, the the we're not sure whether it's TikTok itself. The thing is that you have in these social media platforms, um, almost like automated algorithms that when, when something is reported enough, it gets banned. Uh, and so for instance, when we were covering the Cuba uh, situation, we got suspended, which is for, for one week, we got suspended for one week, basically the whole summer. Uh, so we couldn't cover anything. And it was because we were exposing the lies. We were posting videos from Cuba and we were challenging the imperialist narrative. And the, the Cubans, uh, the Miami Cubans and, and, and stuff were, uh, and the other diasporas um, were, were reporting our video. And there's also in social media now ways to get bots to do stuff. And it's been very successful in, in developing imperialist narratives. We saw that in the, in the protests uh, in Cuba last uh, last year the uh, the social media work was absolutely essential in shaping the narrative you had a bunch of bot accounts that have been made last month the month before uh, that were just there sharing a bunch of fake pictures it was something that actually worked with the Bolivian coup there was something around uh, there was something along the lines of 70,000 accounts created for the sake of disseminating this information because when you do it successfully, what happens in places like Twitter is that it becomes trending. And when it trends, then more people see it. So you create the bots, uh, they are removed within like a week, but the damage was already done. <laughs> and it's already from, from that artificial uh, ground, it was able to create a real ground because it went trending and real people were able to see it. And um, you know, the information war is, is, is tough. <laughs> it's tough. Um, and it's specifically tough when the mediums where, where we have to combat uh, that narrative can so easily take people off who combat it. Um, and I think that right now with the current conflict, wherever, whatever opinion you have on it, if you're uh, anything like uh, critical of the dominant mainstream narrative, you're just gone, right? Uh, anything that's, that tries to contextualize the issue, regardless of where you stand on it, is removed, right? And uh, it's it's very sad, but I, I've heard people say that, well, what we need to do is create the similar uh, sort of uh, technologically social institutions, like different social media platforms, but just specifically for like left-wing uh, discourse. But I don't know, it's very difficult um, and it's a challenge. And I don't think anything replaces just old school organizing in your workplace, organizing in your community. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, Greg's been writing a lot on his blog about the Ukraine situation and uh, the kind of the mendacity of how we cover cover things. Um, I don't know if you followed Chomsky lately, Greg, but he had a had a really nice piece about what was going on in Afghanistan and that we are 
uh, freezing all of the bank accounts. And there's a chance that hundreds of thousands, if not close to a million people will be starving to death because we have frozen all of their assets based on the premise that at some point in time, we might want to come back and get reparations for 9-11 because it started in Afghanistan. The most mendacious, disingenuous, and yet literally no coverage of that. No coverage that our policies are, you know, cre creating horrible situations. Um, so I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. Maybe Elon Musk will, will help us out of all of this. I, you, I if you look at the polling around in just in, in a short time, in, in, in five years, in terms of attitudes towards China and, and, uh, and Russia, it, it is kind of uh, depressing because the turnaround in terms of attitudes is just stunning what the media can do and has done. The mainstream media, you know, the, the ones that have a free, 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 free for all. They just turn uh, a popular opinion completely around on on all this stuff. It's it's uh, it's sad, and it's that's what we face. And uh, like Carlos, I mean, I don't I don't I don't know how we break through that. I mean, I don't know how we uh, get beyond that, that that dominance. But we have to try. And if it's independent platforms, I mean, I'm not capable of doing it. But I hope somebody can figure it out. <laughs> so we can we can do it because uh you know i think what carlos has taught me today is that there's a obviously there's an audience uh, they wouldn't be suppressing it if there wasn't an audience and a growing audience and an audience that bodes well for the future so if you suppress it you know it it, it must be there so we need something to get right. the, the word out we need a, a megaphone Carlos, you are a breath of fresh air. I'm glad I met you. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm going to be uh, stalking you and your work and your academics as you progress. Uh, when are you going to have your book done? Uh, I'm hoping to complete it uh, by August. Uh, the two chapters I have left, they're going to build on stuff that I've already uh, written about in, in popular uh, outlets, uh, but I want to expand on it. Perhaps uh, be less bold with some of the uh, not the content of the things, but with how I express uh, some things, right? Uh, because I, I hope to publish it in an academic uh, setting. I have the department here that it's gonna work with me to hopefully fulfill that end. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I have, you, you guys recently did the interview with, with Chris Townsend and um, it's, it's incredible, the sort of uh, organizing efforts that are taking root now in, uh, in the labor movement. And I forget which one of you two said it, but it was kind of bound to happen, right? Um, and it, it seems to be happening now. And I think that uh, on one side, the sort of, um, the, how I have seen people accept the sort of uh, uh, narrative that we have uh, been pushing uh, shows that, um, that people are open to thinking about new ways of, of doing things. Um, and it's a matter of reaching them. They're going to suppress our ability to reach them, but they can't suppress our ability to talk to our coworkers. They can try. Right. Um, they can separate us, put us one day in one corner of the workplace, another one in another, so that we don't have the same people next to us each day. But um, eventually, it'll fall, right? Right. <laughs> or, yeah. or, just, 
Forbesen, right? <laughs> Greg writes for Marxist Leninist today, and there was Ed, is it Ed Gregor, who wrote an article? Gristar, yeah, Ed Gristar. About okay. Foster and Foster's book and how important that was for these people organizing. And, and that was what Chris mentioned also is the Foster book and how he hands that out like candy wherever he goes to because it's such a powerful um, uh, roadmap of how to how to deal with these things. And um, so anyway, so you will, uh, in, you're gonna, you'll promise you'll come back when you get your book done and we can chat about it. Okay. Absolutely. I'm excited. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. Good, good. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And um, we'll look forward to following you and keep it up. Likewise. Mm -hmm.